Hello again, friends, and welcome to episode three of the Unsunday Show. Thanks for joining me. It means a lot. In this episode, I reach back to my old Ecclesia podcast that I had a few years ago, and I'm bringing over an episode to talk about the clergy-laity distinction within the church, within Christianity. You know, the terms clergy and laity are foreign to the New Testament. Those really don't appear in the New Testament in the way that we hear them, in the way that describes a professional class of Christian who has special education and who is especially qualified to to speak and to uh, be the upfront person as opposed to the lowly laity who are the unprofessional Christian who maybe have uh, less Bible training and who whose job it is to sit passively in the pew and listen to the clergy. The New Testament doesn't know that distinction. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. Clement of Rome, right at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, he's really the one who popularized the word laity to refer to uh, people as opposed to the professional class of Christianity, the clergy. And then later on, Tertullian, who was about 160 to, lived about 160 to 220 AD, he really popularized the term clergy. And so the terms clergy and laity come to us from church tradition, not from anything in the New Testament. And you'll remember we talked about Ignatius' quote, remember Ignatius around 110 AD, so right at the beginning of the second century, spoke of doing nothing in the church apart from the pastor, apart from the bishop and that the bishop is to be listened to as as we listen to Christ. And so he really elevated that office of elder and, and created an office for it and took it from its original original intent of, of simply meeting older, more seasoned people in the faith to a professional cast of, of believer within the assembly and making them the professional. And it was, it was Ignatius who first brought that idea forward to let nothing be done in the assembly, don't let anything be done in the church without the pastor present, without the bishop present. And we've talked before, and we'll talk repeatedly about this, how that that system was firmly in place by the middle of the 3rd century, so around 250 A.D. Pretty much every assembly in existence had that pattern, that there was this head, head person, this head pastor, this head bishop, who was responsible to do all the baptizing, to lead communion, to speak from up front, and really he was the only one speaking within the church. And that's the system that we have today, and and most of us accept that blindly. Most of us just kind of assume that, well, that's the way it is, and there's really nothing we can do about it, and we shouldn't be doing anything about it because that's God's will, and that's the way God set this thing up. But it's it's not the way God set this thing up. Within the assembly, there's a, a functioning of every believer as a priest, there's a functioning of the one another's, and the clergy-laity caste system gets in the way of that. It prevents that. And so I wanted to bring this episode from my old Ecclesia podcast over for you and give it to you as an um, introduction to this clergy-laity conversation and use it for something to build on in future episodes as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Hey, today I wanted to talk about the subject of the clergy-laity distinction. You know, kind of where that came from. We have this system set up in an institutional church setting, which, uh, you know, has been there, it seems like, forever, you know, where we have the professional clergy separated from the, from the uh, just the common folk, the uh, laity. And so we, we take what we think is the professional, professionally trained clergy, the one or the ones who are authorized to uh, speak for God, 
and we kind of elevate them on a platform, and we give them the microphones, and then uh, the lowly laity kind of just sits there and is instructed. We've kind of taken that whole clergy-laity distinction and run with it. And so I want to talk about where that came from. I want to talk about whether or not that's something that, that should continue, whether or not that's something that Jesus had in mind for his ecclesia, for his body, for his assembly. And uh, look at the you know ins and outs of the whole clergy-laity distinction. I've mentioned a quote by Ignatius in the last few episodes as well, which is really kind of a foundational quote for um, the, at least these first several episodes of our podcast, where Ignatius, at about 110 AD, said this, quote, Let no one do anything in the church apart from the bishop. Holy communion is valid when celebrated by the bishop or someone the bishop authorizes. End of quote. And those words penned around 110 A.D. were firmly in place, at least by the middle of the 3rd century. So around 250 A.D., they were firmly entrenched in uh, most of the assemblies. And the assembly began to transition at that point from being an assembly of, of a priesthood of all believers, where, you know, gifts were flowing, gifts were functioning by all members of the, uh, of the assembly, into gifts being done by a few, and the few being the bishop or the pastor, or the elder, whatever you want to call them. Last time we kind of worked through how that elder, pastor, and bishop, you know, referred to the same thing. Bishop being an overseer, um, you know, pastors being shepherds, uh, elders being the most common term probably in the New Testament, and a reference to those seasoned in the faith who had these gifts of caring for the church, of overseeing the church. That doesn't let the rest of us off the hook. Because we looked in Hebrews twelve fifteen, there's a you know that obscure verse that's there where we found out that the entire assembly, the entire body of Christ, is to be overseeing one another, to be caring for one another, to be watching out for one another. It's one of the one another's in the New Testament, and so it doesn't let the rest of us off the hook. It's just that the New Testament seems to recognize that there are some seasoned people in the church who are gifted in this. Um, in this area of overseeing, of protecting, of watching over the flock. And that's who uh, Paul met with in Acts 20 that we talked about last time on the beach there at Miletus when he called for the Ephesian elders to come out and then talk with them. It isn't that they had this special authority over the rest of the assembly. It's that they were the more seasoned people within the assembly and Paul was simply encouraging them to continue to do what they were gifted to do. And I think that's the same thing we see in 1 Peter 5, when Peter said, The elders among you I exhort as a fellow elder. And then he gave them instruction uh, concerning the same kinds of things, to be shepherds, to be overseers. That being said, again, it doesn't let the rest of the uh, assembly off the hook, because in Hebrews 12, again, we're told, that we are to oversee one another, we're to care for one another. And so it isn't a special caste within the, uh, within the assembly, it isn't a clergy caste within the assembly that's to do these things, and the rest of the laity is off the hook. That isn't the idea at all. But the whole clergy-laity distinctive, the whole distinction that goes on there between the professional clergy and the non-professional laity within the uh, institutional church setting, comes out of the top-down authority structure that we've been told is the way things should be within uh, modern institutional churches. We've been told that there's a top-down authority structure that is present, 
That top-down authority structure reveals itself most clearly in the clergy-laity distinction. But really, that top-down authority structure within institutional church settings is a product of tradition. It's a product of tradition and history that started with Ignatius. The one-pastor authority model that we unquestionably accept as a biblical one is actually something that has been handed to us by church history and tradition, and we accept it without question. Not only do we accept it without question, but we've also complicated it by adding layer after layer of hierarchical organizational strata where pastors are over pastors, and those pastors are over other pastors. And the higher the structure rises, the more sophisticated the honorific titles become. Our church authority structures more closely resemble corporate America than anything that we see in the New Testament. In fact, I'll say this, we've taught tradition as the commands of God for so long, it doesn't dawn on us to look past those traditions, to open our New Testament, and ask hard questions that threaten 2,000 plus years of those same entrenched traditions. In other words, I think we've been lied to. I think that church history has given us this tradition of clergy lady, of top-down authority, and we've heard it for so long. We've been told that this is the way it is for so long that we're not questioning it. We've stopped questioning it, and we've just blindly accepted it as uh, something in the Bible, but it's not in Scripture anywhere. In fact, just the opposite is in Scripture, as, as we've talked about so many times already. Tradition has given us this. History has given us this. But now, today, with so, it seems like with so many leaving the institutional church, not because they've left Jesus, but because they feel the church has, it's time to start asking why. It's time to start asking honest questions and really exploring this. And that's, what again, what I hope this podcast is going to do. And so the overall question is this. Will Ignatius' words, quote, Let no one do anything in the church apart from the bishop. Holy communion is valid when celebrated by the bishop or someone the bishop authorizes, end of quote. Will those words stand in the light of Scripture, or should we jettison it as tradition that has proven harmful to the church and to the priesthood of all believers? So let's talk about this a little bit more and ask the question, who are the clergy? It's my opinion that the continued practice of referring to pastors with honorific titles that sort of mark them out as a special segment within the assembly called clergy, while assigning everyone else to the class of laity has caused a deep rift in the body of Christ and abuse of supposed authority. It's allowed those in supposed power roles to perpetuate those power roles by reinforcement of a call to professional ministry that the rest of the church doesn't possess. Education and academic achievement are the requirements that launch one into the professional clergy role. Now, I'm in no way against education and academic achievement. I am, however, against the abuse of it that I see produced in the clergy-laity caste system. If I hear, let me put this in layman terms one more time. <laughs> well, you get the idea. But here's an honest question that needs answered. Is there such a thing as clergy in the New Testament? And the answer might surprise you. The answer is yes, there is. But it's, it's, it's not what we've been told it is. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Someone hasn't been truthful with us, people. We've been lied to. Someone has given us incorrect information. Those in power who need to keep the power have given us false information. The definition of clergy that we've been told exists in the New Testament, where there's a separation of professional uh, pastors, of professional ministers, if you will, within the institutional church setting, 
as opposed to a non-professional class called the laity is wrong. It's, it's a lie, and it needs to be exposed. We just said that the word clergy is in the New Testament, but its meaning isn't what we've been told it is. Well, what does it mean? Let's talk about it. Our English word for clergy is closely related to a New Testament Greek word called kleros. And kleros can be interpreted uh, different ways depending on context. Again, you know, some people are really fast to run the word studies to prove their point. I don't like to do that. I can do that, but I don't like to do that. I'm always a little weary of word studies because I've seen people run to word studies to prove a point that maybe isn't real clear in Scripture. But it seems like if they run to a word study and kind of muddle the waters a little bit, muddy the waters and, uh, you know, kind of get technical for just a minute, that the word study will convince people to believe something that maybe isn't real clear in Scripture. And it doesn't always happen. I think sometimes word studies can be beneficial. But some of the time I see that happening, and I want to make sure that we don't do that here. But kleros in the New Testament can have several meanings depending on context. Context is always king. But generally, kleros uh, can mean an inheritance. It can also refer to those under one's care. And again, I want to say that context determines meaning. And so in speaking to the elders regarding their care of the church, Peter said this in 1 Peter 5, 3, quote, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, end of quote. The NIV says it this way, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In both of those instances, the phrase those in your charge and those entrusted to you in the NASB are translations of the word kleros, clergy. And the reference is to the entire church, not a special segment within it. Not a special segment within the assembly, but to the entire assembly. This is, this is inescapable. The clergy of God, the kleros of God, is the entire church. It's Christ's inheritance, and we get to participate in it by grace alone. Paul said this to the assemblies within Colossae, the city of Colossae. In Colossians chapter 1, he said this, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance, the kleros, of the saints in light. Consider this, too, from Acts 26. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is rehearsing his conversion. He's talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus and the words that the Lord spoke to him uh, at that time. And he says this, quote, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those, kleros, who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, it's a reference to the, to the entire assembly, that they might find a place among those, the kleros, the inheritance of God, who are sanctified by faith in me. In each of these instances of kleros in the New Testament, the point is clear. Kleros, clergy, is used in the New Testament to refer to the entire church, the entire assembly. There is no hint anywhere in the New Testament of a special class within the church called clergy. You know, a, a professional clergy who are uniquely uh, gifted or, or called to be separated from the rest of the assembly or elevated above others in the local assembly. There's not a hint of that in the New Testament. But we've turned clergy into a thing. We've institutionalized clergy. The history of the assembly, the history of the institutional church from 110 A.D. forward, and certainly from at least 250 A.D. forward, 
The entire history of the Christian church has been riddled with the clergy-laity distinction. We have institutionalized the clergy. We have professionalized a segment of Christianity. We have professionalized a segment of the assembly and elevated those above others who we deem less qualified. We've turned clergy into a thing, and not just a thing, but a hurtful thing, a harmful thing. It's a thing that's come to us via tradition and has no biblical or scriptural precedence, none. But we've taught this tradition as authoritative, as authoritative uh, structure for so long that we have, by our very tradition, nullified scripture on the matter, perpetuating, I believe, a clergy-laity system within the assembly has put an incredible amount of unnecessary pressure on those with pastoring gifts to be more than they can possibly be or should be. And many are burning out because of the insane pressure they face to function as a superstar CEO of a corporate institution that is all about perpetuating the institution. Listen, this is all around us. Suicide, divorce, adultery, and spiritual burnout are on the rise as we isolate the pastor as the lone professional in the system. I have friends who have fallen. I have friends who are in that position or who were in that position of the professional clergy, the professional pastor. I was in that position for a long time and I felt the pressure. But I have friends who were in that position but who finally just hit a wall. They just couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't keep wearing all of the masks. They couldn't keep pretending. And they burned out because of the pressure that's been placed upon them. Is it any wonder? I don't think so. Not only is it unfair to those who are the professional clergy that we've elevated to this position, it's just as unfair to the rest of the assembly. Because the pastors among us, the shepherds among us, the elders among us, can't be real in front of us. We get a pretend version of them to varying degrees. Remember, I'm speaking as one of those uh, mask-wearing former shepherds. I've been behind the closed doors, and I see what goes on. In some of our denominations, the professional pastors aren't even members of the local assembly, but they're members instead of the denominationals of the denomination's pastoral organization. And so that takes the clergy-laity distinction to just a whole new crazy level. But the uh, pastors in, in some settings are, you know, not even supposed to be part of the assembly. They, I remember, let me back up a second. I remember, you know, in, in some professional training, and gosh, that term is just sick now. But I remember in some of the training that went on, uh, you know, being told, hey, if you, you need to surround yourself with other professional clergy, because if you start having problems, if you start, you know, getting into a funk, if you, if you start to burn out, which by the way you will, then you're to have this circle of other professional clergy that you can go to. Don't bleed in front of the congregation. Don't bleed in front of the assembly. Don't bleed in front of your church. Go bleed in front of these other uh, professional clergy because they're the ones that are going to get you. They're the ones that are going to understand. They're the ones that are going to help. If you take it to the local assembly, your image is going to be tarnished. And so, you know, just being encouraged to not even be a part of of the local assembly, but running to other quote-unquote professionals in order to get counseling or to get help. And what that does, again, is it, it makes us fake. 
were wearing multiple layers of masks in front of the assembly that we're supposed to be caring for so that we can keep a professional uh, polished image in front of them and and so that they won't see us struggle like they're struggling. Because after all, we're the professional, they're not. We need to have the answers, they don't. And we need to be strong for them all the time. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for moral failure. But what about the laity? Let's turn our attention there for just a minute. If there's a clergy, there has to be a laity, right? I mean, think about it. Otherwise, the professional clergy have nothing to do. If there isn't a laity, then the clergy has nothing to do. So what about the laity? The Greek word for laity, lykos, doesn't occur in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament uses a closely related word, laos, which simply means people. And it's used again, of the, just like clergy, it's used of the entire assembly. It's used of the entire body. It is not used in the New Testament to refer to the people of God as opposed to the clergy of God. Its uses are all-inclusive in referring to the entire local assembly, just like kleros, just like clergy. Consider this. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm reading from the ESV. Quote, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Laos. End of quote. Consider also this, the words of uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2, quote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, laos, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, laos, but now you are God's people, laos. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. End of quote. And both of these instances in 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 2, the church as a whole is referred to as the people, the laos of God, including the elders, including the shepherds. They're not excluded. There's no hint in the New Testament of a hierarchy within the church that demands we have a clergy laity system in place. In fact, it's my belief that this system is crippling the assembly and needs to be jettisoned. In the New Testament, clergy, kleros, equals people, laos, equals the entire assembly. The people, the laos of God, are not a non-professional segment of the church here to support the professional clergy. Sick tradition has given us, a, given us this idea, not Jesus. Tradition gave us this broken system of top-down authority, and we perpetuate it because we think we have to but we're wrong. To continue down the road, I believe, of promoting a clergy-laity system within the assembly demands that we either ignore or explain away Jesus' words to us. So in Matthew 20, Matthew tells us Jesus' opinion on this, quote, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. End of quote. In the New Testament, both clergy, kleros, 
and laos people refer to the entire local assembly. There's no distinction between the two terms beyond the emphasis intended for each, as reinforced by the individual context of the verses that they appear in. Is Jesus' intention for his church to promote an us and them, clergy-laity separation? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. It shall not be so among you, Jesus said. We have to ask ourselves, do we really believe Jesus' words? If we do, we'll put the brakes on this broken system, and at times abusive system, which destroys the priesthood of all believers with authoritative control. Anytime we institute authoritative control within the assembly, the priesthood of all believers ceases to function. The one another's in the church, in the assembly, ceases to function, and we become a professional, top-down, authoritative corporation where some are in charge, and some are charged with just listening. And that kills the one another's. That kills the priesthood of all believers. That kills a functioning, thriving assembly where everyone in the assembly is exercising their spiritual gifts. It's impossible for that to happen in that top-down, authoritative, clergy, laity setting. It cannot happen. It cannot occur. Pastors, and I'm speaking as one of those, we are not professionals. We are not professional Christians here to tell the non-professional Christians what they need to be doing. We are part of an assembly where there is no top-down authority, where Jesus alone is Lord, where Jesus alone determines the direction of his ecclesia. There's a couple more things I want to talk about before I let you go. Let's look just real quickly at the Reformation. You know, I'm really thankful for the Reformation. So many good things came out of it. And I'm, you know, I'm grateful for how God moved during that time in history and how so many truths of Scripture and truths of the gospel, gospel were reawakened and restored. But while I'm thankful for the Reformation, I'm not thankful for everything about the Reformation. While a lot of good came out of the Reformation, uh, some bad came out of it too. And some of the Reformers, just like you and I, had blind spots. All of them did. And so when we talk about the Reformation, while I'm thankful about, or I'm thankful for, so much that came out of it, I'm not thankful for everything that came out of it. I love that Luther had the boldness to say things like, quote, Grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes, end of quote. Well, those are great words. He also said this, quote, Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, end of quote. He also said, quote, for where God built a church, there the devil will also build a chapel. Those are great uh, statements. I, you know, I love stuff like that. But other statements are a little scary. And they're an indication of the uh, blind spots that some of the reformers had. And a failure, I think, in my opinion, to move far enough away from Rome in some instances. Concerning the, uh, the clergy-laity distinction in the church, Luther, not unlike Ignatius, held a view that only the specially trained ordained ministers were qualified to preach, baptize, and administer the Lord's Supper. He felt that to veer from this and allow the unordained laity to do those things would result in, quote, a perversion of public order, end of quote, and a, quote, undermining respect for authority, leading to deplorable confusion, end of quote. You know, the Anabaptists of the uh, time of the Reformation 
believed that it was crucial to have every member functioning in the body of Christ, and that anyone should be allowed to speak publicly when the church was gathered, when the assembly was together, as opposed to the one-man professional clergy that was so emphasized in that day, just like it is today. Luther was so opposed to the idea of someone other than the professional clergy speaking in in, uh, the assembly that he referred to it as coming from, quote, the pit of hell, end of quote, and that those who were guilty of it should be put to death. I believe I mentioned in a previous episode um, that which uh, Paul Altheus brought to light in his Theology of Martin Luther, when he quoted Luther as saying, quote, It is a wonderful thing that the mouth of every pastor is the mouth of Christ. Therefore, you ought to listen to the pastor not as a man, but as God, end of quote. He also added, quote, the ears are the only organs of a Christian, end of quote. You know, statements like that are a little scary in light of the clergy-lady distinction, in light of, um, you know, quieting the majority of the assembly so that, um, so that the clergy can speak unobstructed. John Calvin in Institutes of the Christian Religion said this, the pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth in a greater way than the sun, food, and drink are necessary to nourish and sustain the present life. And so some of these quotes, you know, are uh, are a little scary. These guys had their, their blind spots as well, and uh, just as I do mine. So I'm not being judgmental, I'm just trying to be aware of it. But I think what has happened is that this clergy-lady distinction is so deeply rooted in our tradition and our spiritual heritage that it's no, it's no wonder talking about it stirs up so much anger and suspicion. We're messing with a sacred cow here, people. And, and those most desperately immersed in this system have the most to lose because it's directly tied to their income. And I, you know, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to you know, pick a fight. I'm just being honest with it. It is. It's, it's a sacred cow. It's a scary and, and a vulnerable place to find oneself in this discussion when you are in that situation. But the assembly has a choice to make. If there's anything church history and tradition can teach us regarding this clergy lady system, it's that the entire structure is built upon power and money, where money flows up and power flows down, and those in power are the beneficiary. I think, it's my opinion, that the the entire clergy-laity system needs dismantled if we take the New Testament at face value. I think, again, Upton Sinclair summed it up perfectly with his quote that I've mentioned mentioned before. He said this, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. End of quote. I think think that hits the nail on the head. Well, what about education? What about education? Does education imply authority? We'll wrap up here. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about it because I think it's important, and I think it's related to the whole clergy-lady caste system that we find ourselves in. So let's talk about education and authority. Let me say at the very beginning, I'm not anti-education. I think being able to talk about uh, things in Scripture with someone who has... uh, really studied something out and well-versed in it, I think it can be a rich and beautiful thing. I think those conversations can be great. I know Christians who do so, and they do it with gentleness and humility, and I'm thankful for them. In the clergy-laity system, academic achievement is of utmost importance because it signifies power and authority. Let me say that again. 
in the clergy laity system, academic achievement is, is of utmost importance because it signifies power and authority. It's a big piece of the pie that sets the professional clergy apart from the non-professional laity and, assumed, and is assumed to convey authority over the, over the laity to some degree or to varying degrees. Because of what tradition has handed us, we accept this without blinking. A huge part of the clergy persona is formal education. We've made it that way. We hire the professionals on purpose. And sadly, I've seen degrees used as a trump card to get the, uh, the lowly laity, if you will, to line up under the clergy. And we do this on purpose. But here's the good news. Academic degrees are not a qualification for biblical elders. The apostles themselves, with the exception of Paul, weren't degreed individuals. Even with that being said, it was obvious to the world around them that they had been with Jesus in Acts 4.13. Paul didn't consider himself over anyone. He considered himself a fellow servant of others. Paul considered himself a brother and a fellow servant with Tychicus, with Epaphras, with Epaphroditus, and with Silvanus. The apostles never talked in terms of authority, or us and them, in the context of serving Christ. They considered themselves rather to be fellow laborers with all believers in the church. Listen, a degree on my wall does not assign me some kind of spiritual authority over you. Tradition says it does, not the New Testament. Tradition has given us this whole clergy-laity caste system, and if the assembly is to survive, it's got to be jettisoned. This is one of the reasons, I believe, in my opinion, that so many are leaving the institutional church setting, is because of this top-down authority, clergy-lady distinction. I think it feeds into the reasons that people are leaving. People are seeing that this isn't authentic. This isn't real. This doesn't promote the gospel. This promotes people. The clergy-lady system has become a tool to guilt people into supporting the institutional setting to bowing to the authority of, the, of those in control. And people are wising up. People are seeing this. They're getting fed up with it. They may not know exactly why, but this is one of the reasons why. We've created this distinction in the assembly when no, no such distinction should ever exist. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, and I'm quoting, But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. End of quote. The theologian James D.G. Dunn put it this way, and we'll close here. He said, quote, the clergy-laity tradition has done more to undermine New Testament authority than most heresies. End of quote. Those are powerful words from our Lord, and those are powerful words from James Dunn as well. People are seeing this. People are seeing the dangers of the top-down authority clergy-laity distinction and what that does to the authentic functioning of the assembly the way Jesus intended it. And so that's kind of my take on the whole clergy-laity distinction within the church. I, I think it's detrimental, and I think it needs to be jettisoned, and the sooner the better. And again, I realize that, you know, this kind of conversation, these kind of questions that come up, this kind of uh, discussion that can come up, 
I know that this whole discussion of the clergy-lady distinction and top-down authority can be hard to listen to, and it can be hard to process, but I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary to be done in order to return to what the New Testament tells us the ecclesia, the assembly, is to be about. And the assembly is to be about gifts functioning with everyone in the assembly. Well, there you have it, friends. Thanks for joining me on this episode three of the Unsunday Show. I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Unsunday Show in any podcast app. If you're so inclined and if you enjoy uh, what you've been hearing so far, I'd appreciate it if you would slide on over to iTunes or slide on over to the iPhone podcast app and leave me a review. Again, since this is a new launch, this is a brand new show, that would be really encouraging to start seeing some reviews there. And I'd also like to hear from you. You can find me on the web at unsunday.libson.com, unsunday.libson.com. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Again, that's unsunday.libsyn.com. I hope you benefited from this episode, and we'll be returning to this topic of the clergy laity often. It'll be interspersed with other conversations that we're having on other subjects, and it may be a standalone subject that we return to again in the future and uh, even mine more data out of it and see what we can come up with. But for now, I appreciate you joining me on the Unsunday Show, and until next time, bye.